Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano De Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Money makes the world go round. The world go round. The world go round. Money makes the world go round. Or does it? Or does it go square? Or does it go in a straight line? Or does it go all over the place? You know, it's we all know the importance of understanding how to manage our own finances. We know the stress and the strain that it causes to individuals, to families, to organisations, to whole economies. And we've seen over the duration of this pandemic that we're living through at the moment, the impact that it's caused on families in that respect. If we're gonna build a flourishing future, and if we're gonna design for a better normal, we'd better understand the role of financial literacy in our whole educational process. Lacey Filipich, who's the founder of Money School, is probably the best human being on the planet to talk to about this whole area of financial literacy. She's been doing so much in this area and she's a terrific, terrific ambassador for the way in which we need to think about the competencies of the future and today's learning for tomorrow's world. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 7 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course I can. We are proud to be partnered with EDAPT Education. EDAPT Education helps schools from around Australia bring together their academic engagement, wellbeing, intervention and student voice data onto one platform. Let your data work for you to improve the academic growth and wellbeing of all students in your school. For training and support to help you get started, visit www.edapt.education. That's www.edapt.education. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. And finally, we get the great man, Dr. Philip S.A. Cummins, down in Melbourne permanently. Is that right, Phil? Um, yes, that's it. that's right. I, I, you know, this is this is the formal announcement. Um, I think I might have made an a, 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 an informal announcement in uh, in our previous episode, the uh, series prologue. But this is the formal announcement. I have taken up residency in Fitzroy. I have heard the calling of the quinoa, Adriano and Lacey. And when a man hears quinoa whispering in his ear on a cool, cool winter's night, you have to respond. There's only one downfall in all of this, Phil, because I love the fact that you're in Melbourne, but I've got now, I can't say anything bad about Sydney because you're not there anymore. <laughs> well, you're just, you're just going to have to think harder, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to have to. So I'm really super excited about episode one, series seven of The Game Changers with my awesome friend, young Lacey Filipich. We're going to get straight into the very first question, Lacey. Great. Tell us a little bit about your personal story. How did you get to where you are today? Oh, well, this could take a while. Feel free to cut me off if I ramble too much. Uh, look, I guess I've always been interested in money, which is what we're talking about today, but my background is actually chemical engineering. I went straight from high school into chemical engineering and into mining, and what I saw was a lot of people spending a lot of money on things that they didn't really need and complaining that they didn't have enough money for the things that they did need. 
Um, meanwhile, I was saving half of every dollar I've ever earned since I was 10 years old because my mum taught me about compound interest as money making more money. And that really got my attention. Um, and I was investing. I started when I was 19. And so while my friends were getting car loans and I was buying investment properties and shares, they were going, how come you don't have to work as much? And I was saying, well, I've got a passive income. Um, and I hadn't realised how little financial education happens at school and at home. And I guess that's why today I now run Money School, which is trying to give people the skills about money so that they can become financially empowered and in control of their future. What was that moment when you made the decision to kind of shift from what, what you initially went into in terms of what you studied and, and, and it started into a space that is about ultimately empowering young people on how to make sure that they're financially solvent so they can live a life of deep purpose. Mm, it was a pretty significant turning point for me. Um, in 2008, 2009, so this will date me, I was sort of 26, 27, um, I had a few life-changing experiences. So first of all, I got really sick, like bedridden for five weeks, didn't think I was going to get better. And that was a sort of a shock to me. I'd been working really hard. And I guess I thought, like most young people, I was invincible. <laughs> um, it turned out I had a virus, but um, it just took me a long time to recover. I've actually lost half my hearing as a result of it. And that was like a I wake up call, like mortality, right? Like I'm not invincible. So that was the first thing that happened. I had that, wow. Life is finite and I need to appreciate it. Mm -hmm. The second thing that happened was I got a promotion, which was supposed to be really exciting. And I thought it was going to solve all my problems. And it turned out that the further you go up the ladder, just the more meat in the sandwich. <laughs> so you still don't get to be autonomous. And then the third really sad thing that happened was my sister took her own life. So again, that, that mortality came home to me. And I had that moment of, is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Work really hard to the point where I make myself sick and not have friends and not have a social life and that's the moment that I went gee I really need to do something else and I decided to resign without a job to go to and while I was having some time off to recuperate I thought gee what what could I do to to give more purpose to my life what could I do to give back because I've been investing and I didn't have a high amount of pressure to go back to work for income which is really good um, and I thought well my friends don't know how to manage money and everyone keeps asking me about money maybe I can do something in financial education so that was where I thought well I've got something unique here the way that my mum raised me and she taught me about money meant that I could probably help other young people and I really think the young people are the key with this. Well, first of all, thank you very much for sharing such a personal story just then as well. It's um, never easy to, to relive those, those particular moments. But often, you know, what Phil and I have been experiencing with the individuals we've been chatting to on Game Changers is it, that it has there has been moments. There have been either, either through personal adversity or those aha moments uh, where the penny drops, pun intended, uh, where the penny drops <laughs> and, and, and an individual comes to the realisation that it's no longer about them. It's actually about what I can continue to do in my not with my knowledge and my skills and my disposition to actually serve a community. And, and what I have grown great admiration for your work is exactly that. So much of our conversations that we've had over the journey since we met at Space, uh, now 2019, can you imagine that, hey? Uh, back in May, is, is, is an individual that is so committed to the other. So perhaps can you talk then a little bit to our listeners about the construct of Money School? What, what motivated you then to ultimately write a book about how we'll work, live, lead, and learn in this new future that we're living in? Mm. Well, I think thinking about how I learned was where it started. So how am I going to communicate this? I was thinking about um, 
if I was going to teach someone, if I wanted young people to learn, what would I want them to learn and how would I want them to learn? And I think the how is really important when we talk about money. There's a, an inclination to shove as much as we can into the curriculum, right? To be like, well, let's add that to the curriculum, but hey, what do we take out? And I guess my moral with what I had seen in my life, the story came down to my mum taught me at home and she didn't sit down and lecture me and she didn't uh, make me do tests or anything. She just planted a few seeds. You know, she, she said a few lines across my life um, and a little bit of information at the right time was enough to really spark my interest. And I thought, well, I, I prefer that model rather than like, hey, we're going to have this really intense, I'm going to lecture you about money. Can we do some stuff that just catches attention? Um, the second thing was that learning from my mum allowed her to impart some of her values in what I was learning. So how much do you give? Um, do you tithe to the church? If you're Muslim, do you do zakat? You know, what, what do you believe is important? What do you think is ethical? How do you want to invest? And those are really tough questions to deal with necessarily just in a classroom. They need some foundational work at home as well. So I think there's a sort of complementary thing that can happen there between the curriculum and the classroom and what's at home, but the home piece is really important. And so I decided I would just model what my mum taught me and then what I had learned as I had started investing and try and design a curriculum that helped parents teach their kids about money initially. And so I thought that's what I was going to do. <laughs> that's where money school started. I was going to teach mum and dad and say, hey, mum and dad, here's 10 activities. Do these ones with your kids. Here's a game you can play. Here's some real life examples. Um, and what I found was a lot of the parents didn't have the skills. So I ended up teaching the parents because they were yeah. like, hey, look, that's really nice. I want to teach my kids that, but I don't understand investing and I don't get how saving works and I can't budget. Um, so my most common client actually became a 40-year-old woman without kids. <laughs> they were saying, oh, well, I need this help. And so I guess that's how money schools evolved over time from being completely focused on the kids to then looking at adults. And that's where the book came in was Penguin Random House. We're looking for someone to talk to, particularly millennials. They were really keen to find someone who, who was younger that they could relate to um, and someone who simplified the language. And I think that's where people get really stuck with money. They stress, like you hear the word budget. No one gets excited about the word budget. That's, you know, only politicians and accountants like that word, but we call it a plan. And suddenly it's a little bit more accessible, a spending plan, you know. So those little tweaks, I think, have flowed through from the parents and the adults I've been teaching into the kids as well, um, which is really exciting. It's nice to see the impact of that. And, of course, I stumbled upon entrepreneurship as a wonderful way to teach kids about money. Yeah. But it's been a real adventure over 11 years. <laughs> Lacey, I, it's, it's, um, it, as, I, as I'm sitting here and listening to you, I mean, I know that thousands of people around the world have used your courses to liberate themselves from debt and start saving and get on the path to independence. And God bless you for doing that work because this is, this is really meaningful, powerful and impactful work. And, you know, through Money School and through your Maker Kids Club, there are all sorts of programs and so on and so on. We're going to get to programs later. But as I'm listening to you, this is not about managing money. This is about managing yourself isn't it? Absolutely. It is. And You're exactly right. So much of the skill of managing money is about things like deferred gratification, self-regulation, focusing on empowerment rather than denial, connection to purpose. So much of what we're looking here is about your, your capacity as an individual to understand your habits and then to work forward around that. How do you find the work of character impacts on what you're trying to do? Oh, this is such an important point. And I guess that's why I always think there's got to be some stuff about the at home. 
part to this financial education. It has to have context of your personal beliefs, what's important to you. And as you've mentioned, those habits, I think for a lot of people, um, we develop this belief about ourselves and it happens young. You know, I'm not good with money or um, I don't care about money. It's not important to me. Or I'm just going to go for this thing because it makes me feel good. And unfortunately, our brain kind of doesn't help us there because spending money releases feel-good chemicals, right? Just like sex and drugs and exercise. Um, so you do have to have some character, some discipline built in to overcome some of those urges. And I think different people have different you know, fundamental bases for this. You know, I, I very regularly see siblings raised in the same household by the same parents, one or two years apart. One's a spender, one's a saver. How did that happen? You know, how did how did you have these kids in the same environment but have totally different uh, beliefs about money and attitudes to money? And I think that comes down to that personal character, that that belief about yourself, um, and and some things that might be hardwired in us. What I have discovered though is that even if you are more inclined towards spending than saving, which is a hard thing to you know, deal with if you're trying to become financially independent. You can design your system and automate it so the saving happens automatically. And then you don't need this willpower. You don't need this constant habit as much to get some of those good basics in place. So if you recognize how you feel about money, what's important to you, your individual mindset, you can design around that. And there's no like one size fits all here. There's no absolute, well, you will never be good at money. <laughs> I've never met anyone who I thought not, not able to be fixed, not able to work on themselves. And I think that personal dedication is required to recognize what's important to you and then build accordingly. So this isn't necessarily about the stuff of financial literacy so much as a case study in how to develop the character, the competency, the wellness, the, the, the whole of learning that's going to help you thrive in your world and applying it through the lens of your financial management, your financial responsibilities. Buried within that is risk and return, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, listening to you there about the differences in families, I think about myself and my own brother and we're about as different as you could be. And, you know, it's one of the things that worries me at the moment where you get people all going around the world at the moment and they emphasize that, you know, if you come from a certain background, you must think and believe in this way. And then you just look at families and we're all different in families, aren't we? How is it that we can help people to understand and to respond positively to their different risk and reward appetites. Mm, and this is really important to pull apart because if you do go to traditional financial advice, they'll take your age, they'll find out how many dependents you've got, they'll look at your balance sheet and your cash flow and they'll say, oh, well, you should have a conservative portfolio or you should have a risk, risky one with an aggressive investment strategy to grow quickly. And in fact, that is a terrible recipe for stress. <laughs> um, your age and your demographics actually don't really dictate. I mean, they might influence, but they don't dictate your tolerance for risk or your appetite for particular investments. And I always use the example of my mum, 32 years older than me. She did much more riskier investing than I ever did. She did foreign exchange. She did options trading. She's into cryptocurrency. I wouldn't touch most of that stuff with a 10-foot pole, even though I'm much younger, because she really loved it and she could sleep well at night. I would not have slept well at night. So I always refer back to this sleep well test for people is if you chose that particular investment, if you went for something, knowing the risks and the potential rewards, would you be able to sleep 
would you or would you be sitting there chewing your nails panicking you know because if you would be panicking and you'd be stressing then the odds of you making a mistake because you have a knee-jerk reaction are much higher so it's actually it's not a case of there's only one way to invest it's you know you hear people say oh i like property and i hate shares or the vice versa both can work yeah, yeah, Lacey, it's, it's, it's funny you mention that because I've literally had a conversation today with one of our game changers, Dwayne Matthews, and we were talking about this, that and the other and, and not talking about, you know, the advice of my father. And, you know, my father actually didn't teach me very much about financial literacy. He taught me how to put columns in a book and sort of add up expenses and debits and so on. That was really, really useful. Um, and, he, and he banged on all the time about never, never spend anything, save everything for your old age, which wasn't particularly helpful for me. But he did teach me that you have to be able to sleep in bed at night. And, yeah. and that sense of being connected to who you are and your place in the world and your purpose is really, really important. Do you think mm-hmm. it's do you think it's really possible to do this financial literacy thing unless you really know what you're trying to do in life? <laughs> I think it makes it harder and your chances of making a mistake are much higher if you don't know where you're going. And the example I'll always use is. Well, if you're trying to create investments that give you a passive income so that you can choose to work a bit less, so you could spend time on a hobby or volunteering or something like that, that's very different from someone who wants to invest for capital growth to grow a huge amount of wealth and security for their family. They require different strategies. So some of these investments are quite costly to get in and out of. I'm thinking of property, right? You know, you pay stamp duty, you pay agents fees. If you pick an investment that's not right for you, because you've decided, hey, that's not the path I want to go down, the cost of getting out of it can be quite high. So I do think it's important for people to have the end in mind with their money. The great news is that there's only a few rules and they are save, buy assets, avoid bad debt. If you follow those in general, you won't go too far wrong. So even if you don't know exactly what you want to do, going on a particular path and starting down that way and, and trying a little bit with low risk and low capital, you know, don't go all in on the first investment if you're not sure, um, can allow you to discover whether you like it or not and, and get you to build that. But sometimes you won't know at the start. Don't let that stop you. Just start small. If you do know, it will be easier for you later. Okay. So if, if, we, jump, if we jump into the life of schools right now, I can tell you, and, and Adriano can as well too, without, without a shadow of doubt, that if you talk to the 17-year-olds and 18-year-olds who are leaving school, they want to know how to make all this stuff work. Probably like me as a teenager, when my dad tried to talk about it, I didn't hear most of it. So I only, <laughs> only like in my little anecdote, then he probably taught me, tried to teach me a whole lot of stuff and I just didn't listen to all the rest of it. But kids are crying out for this sort of stuff. And they always tell you, we want this stuff because this will help prepare us for life. Everyone says it's important. Everyone nods their heads, but it doesn't happen in schools. What do you believe are the conditions that lead to deep and effective and meaningful financial literacy learning in schools so that kids can come out and go, yep, I get it? I think it's got to be cross-functional. There's no use just saying we're going to do it in maths, right? Because some people won't love maths. Look, you don't need to be good at maths to be good at money, but if that's the only place you can learn about money, well, we're we're in trouble. Um, I think... The complementary bit between HASS, you know, humanities and social sciences and maths, if you can get some cross-functional learning happening and apply that real-world application, 
so that they see the connection. It's not just, oh, I've learned about um, compounding as a theory. They've learned about how that compounding then generates income for them. It's been put in context. You're going to get a good result. I also think it's just got to be drip fed all the way through. You can't just go, right, so you're 10. We now have to teach you about tax and then we're done. <laughs> um, so many of these concepts are not complicated. They're made to look hard by the financial industry, I think, sometimes, but they aren't really um, difficult if we can be conscious about drip feeding all the way through and you find fantastic teachers who do do this but I think often teachers maybe ne never learn these skills either they don't know how to connect it to what they're teaching um, and it's an unfair expectation for them to try and work it out I think if we can find teachers who either love the topic and have that experience or give them the skills so that they feel knowledgeable and they can see the connection to their existing curriculum there's heaps of opportunities to make people really financially capable as they come out of school What's really powerful about what I'm hearing you share there is that we need to break down a silo mentality within schools. You know, things shouldn't be just done by one teacher in one discrete subject. What I'm hearing you say is that financial literacy, like digital literacy, like literacy, like numeracy, like enterprise thinking, like science thinking should be cross-curricular and an interdisciplinary approach. And it should be part of the framework of, of the kind of knowing and doing that we're going to require young people to, to develop in terms of their skill sets so they can then move on and apply that to real world contexts like what you do at Money School about the entrepreneur kind of framework. I love that because it, it operates from, from a position of, of hope and it operates from a position of the power of the, the, the joint collaboration in helping these young people take this knowledge and skills and apply it in, in the contexts of their lives, in their learning, in their living, and in, in, you know, in their working. Talking about concepts, you and I have had lots of conversations around the concept of time rich. Can you please share with our listeners, what is your concept of time rich? Because this was my aha moment when I met you. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll try and remember what I said. Um, <laughs> look, I think most of us expect we're going to work through life for, you know, probably five decades. And then at the end of it, we're going to get this retirement at the end of our lives, you know, when we're in our mid-60s, sometimes later these days, right? And that we think that's the reward for working hard through our lives. And so we don't take much time off. We might take our four weeks of annual leave after 10 years. We might get some long service leave. What I think is sad about that is you, you're not allowing time for creativity, to follow hobbies, to, to build new things. I mean, you guys have been through the process of building, right? You've just built this amazing podcast and, and it's incredible what you've had time to build. But if you were struggling to feed yourselves, you wouldn't have time to create that stuff. So I think the point of money is actually the money doesn't really matter. It's just a tool. The point of the money is you get to buy back your time. You get to decide how are you going to spend every second, every minute, every hour of every day once you have enough income? So if you can build up your assets so that they pay you enough to cover your living costs, suddenly you reach this point of time rich. Now, I really prefer time rich to the other term that gets used a lot, which is retiring early. Very few people I know who are young that become financially independent actually fully retire. They're doing something. They might only be blogging, but a lot of them are off creating startups. Some of them are doing education. They're creating podcasts. They're writing books. But the point is they get to choose how they spend their time. If they want to sit on a beach, they can. If they want to be caring for their kids, they can. If they want to be volunteering at the local homeless shelter, they can. It's up to them. They get to choose how they spend their time. And that's why I think the point of money is to become time rich so we don't have to wait for this end of life retirement to finally do the things we feel called to do. This is really interesting to, to, to hear this concept around time, Rich. There are many listeners 
of game changers who love what the guests have to say and the journeys they share and the actual not only the inquiry site but the practical application of, of what they do and they can ready they can start visualizing it in their classrooms but often what we hear them say to us and is the common vernacular it appears not just by by them by pretty much everyone is the opposite of time time rich and that's we're time poor yeah. you know and and what i'm hearing you say is that the concept of time rich even if I put money aside, I'm not talking about that in the concept of it relating to the, to the retirement. It's about an investment, a clever way to do investment so that I can gain time in all aspects of my life. And, and I really love uh, 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 the way in which you share, have shared that in your book and also you know, here on the podcast and in our conversations. I want to I now shift the conversation to digital learning and online learning because that could be a place where people could gain time. Right, because because the whole notion of any on, online learning is anytime, anywhere, and that enabling us to to create more of a life harmony in what we do, because then we can make it a kind of a bespoke learning experience, irrespective of where we are in the world. Right, providing we have the bandwidth and the access, which is part of the pandemic, we know. Mm-hmm. So, how can the full flourishing of all young people? be truly achieved through schools better utilising technology to enrich the whole learning experience of the individual. Mm. And I guess I'll come to this as someone who's not a professional educator. You know, I'm a chemical engineer. I work with curriculum developers. I've learned a little bit of that vernacular and I guess I've had a lot of hands-on experience. What I've noticed is because everybody learns in different ways, the more opportunities you have for them to try different things, the more likely they are to find one that works for them. And so I think... Um, there's a lot of kids these days who love a short, you know, under three minute video on YouTube. I mean, when I need to work out how to do something, I go to YouTube, right? (laughs) So if you can find some um, videos that are really accessible, bite-sized, that's going to supplement your learning. It's also, I've always wondered, why isn't Eddie Wu teaching us all maths? If we can do, if, if he's this fantastic maths teacher, why haven't we just got his best teaching available as videos? And then in the classroom, the role is much more about coaching and helping and, and being side by side with the students rather than having to deliver content, which to me, look, bluntly, I feel like someone standing up and delivering the same talk that they've delivered every year for 10 years might not be the best use of time anymore, right? Like it, it's going to, I get that it's the way that we do it, <laughs> but I would really love to see some of those core concepts that don't necessarily need feedback to get them across you know like I understand there are times when you need to see the students you need to have them asking questions but can you have some of it online and then spend that face-to-face time more deeply answering those questions and helping them apply I feel like you're going to get a better result and then you don't spend as much time in content delivery which I feel is like the the least value-adding process that we have at the moment because it's repeatable. You know, the example that you've just shared with us about the possibility of a, a profound and passionate educator like Eddie Wu, you know, doing what he does. In fact, he is. Yeah. And this is the thing, right? He, he's the example and the hope of what it could be because he's had over 1 million hits on, on his YouTube channel and, and every one of his... Um, on, his, on, on, his, on, his on his WooTube channel. On his WooTube channel. <laughs> thank you. On his WooTube channel. Uh, every one of those hits have a direct relationship to the New South Wales curriculum and every aspect of the math curriculum at, of New South Wales. So fundamentally, he has crafted highly engaging instructional, explicit direct instruction videos to support all learners. It's complemented by a whole series of stretch activity worksheets to really challenge you further to go on. 
the power of what he has done is then he then utilizes that to focus on the core business of the human-centered relationships mm-hmm. and leveraging the relationships and really understanding each young person in his care. And then t- and, and, and the power is that that young person can watch that video 20 times until they understand the concept. But he's also there then as the, as the human support, as the coach on the side, you know, the mentor on the side, championing them along and building those relationships and making them feel brave and unafraid of the challenge ahead. That's where the magic happens in school, isn't it? We, we know the best part of the on-campus on, on experience is that character apprenticeship that's developed between the teacher and the student and, of course, the peer relationships. And so that, that example that you shared with us is, is, is perfect and, and profound. And, and I really appreciate you for, for doing that. Lacey, I want to pick up from what Adriana was talking about there in terms of relationships and just pick up on something that you talked about earlier in terms of parents. How can we help parents to understand what their role is within this process, particularly if perhaps like yours truly at some point, you didn't feel that confident around your own financial literacy to start with? Mm, well, the first thing I'd say to all parents is doesn't matter if you're good with money or not, you can teach your kids about money, Okay. Now, you're either going to be teaching them as being a role model or you're going to be an example. I had my dad as an example what not to do. My mum is a role model of what to do. So whether you're you're conscious of it or not, you're already kind of teaching them. What I want to give parents confidence about is that you don't have to have all the answers and you can start with really simple concepts. And the one that I find most powerful for parents to use when it comes to money, you don't need any maths for it. Focus on waste. Money is a resource to be used wisely to our highest impact that we can have in our lives. It's just a resource. It's a tool. The same as we turn water off when we're brushing our teeth, the same as we turn the light switch off when we leave the room, the same as we separate our waste into the correct bins so that we can not waste things, not send things to landfill, not flush things down the drain unnecessarily. That's the attitude you need with money. So if you can get kids thinking about money as a resource to use wisely and not to be wasted, you don't actually need any maths. You don't need to be good with money. You've just got to have that attitude of, look, I've got a dollar to spend. Every dollar is a vote. What future do I want for me, for my family, for the environment, for whatever's important to you? And that concept of not wasting it, not frivolously letting that money that you work so hard to earn just leave your hands for something that's not going to give you benefit. So I think if parents can just concentrate on that concept of waste, then it becomes much less daunting. And like, I can tell you that I've seen three-year-olds get it. <laughs> you know, like a kid, a kid knows why they turn off the tap. When you say to them, well, you see that water running down the drain and that's water that we had to work hard to catch, especially in Australia, kids get it. If you can talk about waste with money as well, then just having that conversation is enough to plant those seeds. And you don't have to do a lecture. You can just do that little, you know, well, we've got a choice to make with our money today. Are we going to spend it on this or that? Uh, What's going to be the least wasteful, the most beneficial for our family? And if you can have that attitude, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to know how to invest. You don't have to have a thou shalt save 20% target, you know, you just have to have the conversation with them. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating hearing you say that because that's just, it's just gone, rung my bell there because it's, that's, I think, I think that's when I started to understand how to move forward um, financially. Was it, I, it, I hate waste. I can't, I, I can't you know, my, my kids will tell you, when I run, run around the house going, I can't abide waste. Um, and when I was able to tap finance into that and transfer that across, I think the second thing that probably helped me too is, was to think about the notion of investing wisely. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not going for a, for a quick return and, you know, it, it don't come for free because it never does. And if it's too good to be true, then it probably is, you know, all that sort of stuff. But that yeah. notion of investing wisely, 
um, and, this, and the deep satisfaction it can give you is just as strong as that deep satisfaction that comes with knowing that, that what you're doing isn't wasting stuff and that you're conserving things particularly well. I want to shift on, if I can, to arts education, just to demonstrate to my colleague here that, um, that, that uh, he, he doesn't have a sole mandate over this area. One of the things that's really interesting in the tertiary world at both universities and, and private colleges and so on, where music, art, design, the creative arts are being taught in the world today, is that you can't do a course in the arts without doing the business side of it. Okay, now we've got that in the tertiary world. We haven't got that yet in the secondary world. So we've still got, you know, the binary thinking going on of, you know, here's the evil, filthy lucre of the crass world of commercialism and here's the noble, pure world of the fine arts or, the, or, the, or, or music or whatever it is. Um, and yet anybody who's anybody in all of this, you know, what's the, what's the one thing the arts doesn't have? Money. And what have you got to be able to do? Not waste anything and invest wisely and do these sorts of things that you're talking about here. How do we in schools keep challenging binary thinking? How can we, how can we use better thinking to design a better normal, uh, one that equips and empowers and enables young people to move from surviving, and in this instance, you know, surviving is, you know, starving artists in uh, garrets in Fitzroy to thriving as... <laughs> as global design entrepreneurs in sunshine in this new world environment? Oh, I love this question. And I think you, you've really used very um, appropriate language, the starving artist and the filthy capitalists. You know, they, we do feel binary, don't we? I think that part of it, first of all, is a societal question. We have implemented capitalism pretty poorly in that we haven't made it sustainable, right? So I get why people think, oh, well, you just want money for the sake of polluting our environment and you're destroying it for everyone. And I want nothing to do with that. Thou shalt be over here, pure and perfect. Um, I think there's got to be some kind of role modelling about how money can be used for good. So we've got B corporations, we've got social enterprise rising. This idea, you know, I think of businesses like thank you. And who gives a crap? You know, like those businesses that have been created to do good. So I think the more that we can get people going, hey, money can be used powerfully for the benefit of all people and to create good. We, we sort of overcome this mindset of it's evil. I think, I think the other thing is no one wants to be starving. <laughs> Maybe it's necessary for some art to be amazing. Maybe that drive is essential. But I think if we can understand the impact that it has on human and I found this absolutely incredible. When you are under financial stress, your IQ drops by 13 points. Yeah. Okay. So you, your CPU of your brain is sitting there processing, how am I going to eat? How am I going to afford rent? How am I going to be able to pick my kids up from school in the car today because I can't get any petrol? When that is happening, your brain is distracted. You, you don't have capacity that you would have under normal circumstances. It's like trying to, you know, run a marathon with a sprained ankle. You know, you're not going to get very far. You're not going to be as effective as you can be. And I imagine in creating art and creating music and all those wonderful things, you still need that capacity. And having your brain preoccupied with money is going to mean you can't reach your potential. <laughs> so I think 
if we can communicate it to people that money is a tool, you get to choose how you're going to use it, have some great role models of sustainable capitalism that really works for everybody and make the point that these young people have to have money in order to eat and to have a roof over their heads. And without that, they won't reach their full potential. I think those are really powerful arguments that get people paying attention and go, well, fine, I do need to learn about money. I'm on board. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, there is so much that uh, literature right now that talks about, you know, the shifting nature of the world of work and that the future's already here and, off, and I often say we're already late, you know, uh, and, and organisations like, you know, Foundation for Young Australians, Learning Centres Australia, the World Economic Forum, they all talk about what are the kind of uh, enterprise thinking skills that are going to be required to help people flourish. We know that digital skills is on that list. We know that creativity is on that list. We, we know that uh, critical thinking is on that list and communication. But of course, financial literacy is also part of that particular long list. Uh, and we, we can no longer avoid it, particularly in a world where so much is going to go towards automation and artificial intelligence, which is going to then require us as humans to be a lot more creative in that kind of designer and entrepreneurial mindset. And, and to do that successfully and leverage that successfully, we've got to know how to have, understand balance sheets, don't we? I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer. Mm. This whole conversation that we've been talking about today has been centred around your life's work to date. My colleague, who's very humble uh, at the moment, he's not going to say too much about this, he's actually curated an amazing course around the notion of a life of purpose. And it's designed to, for, for young people, year nines and tens and elevens, to, to start thinking about what is their why. What, why, why do they exist and, and ask those you know big broad questions in life as they navigate through their adolescence and everything that's changing and, and, and the pressures and the restlessness of that time of their life. I'm interested in knowing what is your life of purpose? Oh, it's a fascinating one, isn't it? And it's always lovely to be able to look back and think, actually, I'm not, I'm on track. And I do feel like I'm on track. I, so I've always known that I wanted to be around for kids and for having a family and, you know, that Mother Teresa quote of, um, you know, you want to change the world, go home and love your family. And the fact that I've been able to invest and be time rich has meant that I have been able to do that and I've got my young kids. So that's that's probably one part of my purpose, which is very almost selfish <laughs> because I love spending time with my kids and I've been very fortunate to have that time um, to be able to be with them and to, to set my timetable. So that's, that's the selfish bit. I guess this idea of being able to empower young people so they are not intimidated by money and they recognise it's a tool if they can start when I started, you know, I started saving at 10, but they don't have to start saving at 10. The point is I started saving in order to invest when I was in my late teens and bought my first property when I was 19. Right. So if we can get them in school and we can get them making really good financial choices early, it's going to be better for everybody, like society as a whole, because we'll have to spend less money for people who have become homeless. We'll have to spend less money on worrying about the health impacts that financial stress brings and the suicide rates that it causes. Society as a whole benefits from more financially empowered people. But the really selfish thing for me is we've got these massive problems around our climate, our environment, sustainability in general. I want these young people who are super creative, super intelligent to have enough time to work on those problems and fix them for us. And if they are wage slaves... <laughs> They can't. They can't get the time. You know, if they can't produce an income, another way from investing their hours to get a wage in something that they don't love, then we might not get these problems solved. And I think it's an imperative for humankind. So they're all pretty selfish reasons, but I hope they will benefit everybody along the way. <laughs> I don't know if they're selfish or less selfish, maybe self-full. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely would win. If someone solves climate change, I'll feel really good about it, but we'll all win. <laughs> so please, please, <laughs> yeah. young people, go fix these problems for us. <laughs> yeah, look, I think I think that, um, you know, there's, there's no school in, in the world that teaches people to be selfish. Everyone teaches kids to be selfless. But at the same time, if you don't care for yourself, you can't care for other people to the yeah. fullest extent. And, you know, the, the challenge that we come across again and again and again is finding utterly dedicated people who wear themselves out because they don't care for themselves. Every single listener out there right now, you know what I mean when I, when, when I say when you wake up at two o'clock in the morning and you're worrying about money, you can't be your best for anybody around you. And it just, and it, you can't be wholly well. You can't be wholly psychologically well or emotionally well. Or as you said, Lacey, I'm, I'm staggered by that stat of just dropping 13 IQ points because you're financially stressed. Adriano, that explains a fair amount about me, I think, um, <laughs> um, uh, um, from time to time. But, you know, again, if we're, if we're honest about these sorts of things, and I think this, this is the sort of thing that we need to be honest about because it's a little bit like the conversation about mental health that we've been having in our country over the last um, and, and around the world over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years where we're starting to be more open about these sorts of things. Um, and and, and if, if we don't promote the conversation about it, if we don't build up a high-performance learning culture around this sort of stuff, then we're going to struggle. So final question, what are your three tips for our listeners about how to build high-performance learning about financial literacy for staff, for students, for parents within a, a, a community of inquiry and practice? Mm, three tips. Well, I think the first one is the drip feed. Don't expect to sit down and give a kid a lecture for two hours and then say it's done. And there are so many opportunities to teach. I think for parents that are listening, Every time you go to the shops with your kid is a chance to share a bit of a lesson or some perspective about money and it could just be one sentence or one gesture. So don't think it's got to be big. <laughs> I guess I really believe in the, the cross-functional, cross-discipline approach. I think every teacher can talk about money in context. You know, I think about even the persuasive marketing module that the kids do in English you know, analysing why a bank would have a character named Cred <laughs> um, in their school banking program can help build knowledge about how we get marketed to around finance. I think that it can be applied in almost every subject. So looking for those little opportunities is probably my second tip. No matter what your subject is, you can find a way to embed real-life learning about money into it. And then I, the third tip would be, even if you're not good with money, please don't worry about it. It's never too late to learn. It's never too late to improve your financial situation. And you only have to be one step ahead of the kids, right? <laughs> Just one lesson. So if you can remember pay yourself first, you're already one step ahead of them, okay? So don't feel you've got to know everything or understand everything. There are incredible independent resources out there that you can draw from and, and make a really big difference in the lives of the kids you teach. Lacey Filipich, it's been just an absolute pleasure having a chat with you today. I've learned so much. I think this is something that's absolutely essential. You are, you, I think you referred to yourself earlier as not a professional educator. You got to remember, this is a bit, little bit like the Dr. Carl show. On the Dr. Carl show, everyone's a doctor. On this show, <laughs> everyone's an educator because what are we doing? We are helping people become, to grow, to become the person that they need to do. And everybody plays a role in it. You are absolutely a game changer. You're a person who's conceived of a benefit for others and has worked out how to build educational programs which are uh, uh, stunningly successful in helping people to learn about themselves to learn about 
money and about how to build better lives. So thank you for the work you're doing. We've really, really enjoyed the conversation. Adriana. I was just going to say there will be people listening to this because I, because so much of this particular series is about highlighting individuals who are not only living out their truth and their purpose, but, but doing it in ways that are practical applications to, to empower others. So these people that are listening, where is the best way they can contact you to get money school into their schools? Oh, thank you. Please um, visit moneyschool.org.au. That's my website. Uh, You will be able to find plenty of free information and courses. You'll be able to find out about the book and our paid courses, and you can get in touch with me via the contact form. I'd love to hear from you. Lacey, it's always wonderful to see you. I can't wait till we catch up again over a few cocktails, either in Melbourne or even Perth. Uh, Yeah, wouldn't that be exciting? Um, (laughs) And so thank you very much. Thank you very much for your energy, your joy that you continue to bring to this particular space. And, and also as a game changer for your foresight about not only a, the, the role that money plays in our life, but that's secondary. It's about an investment in our future for us to reclaim time for the things that matter. Oh, thank you. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.